Mark chapter 2, verse 18 through 22. I'll read, we'll pray, and then we'll get into the text this morning. Verse 18. Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting, and people came and said to him, Why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? They said to ask Jesus and his disciples. And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guest fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast on that day. No one sews an unshrunk piece of cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it, the new from the old, and a worse tear is made. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is destroyed. And so are the skins. But new wine is for fresh wineskins. That's our text. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you this morning for your word. And we pray, God, that this morning, I know that you, you know us, Lord. You know every single heart, every single soul, every single person in this room. You know where we're at today. You know our doubts and our fears and even our unbelief. You know our joy and our faith. Lord, you know us. And I pray that you would take us further today, deeper into your heart, deeper into your will, deeper into your way, God. I pray that those who have been hurt by the church would heal, that you would begin this process of healing and restoration for those people. I pray for those who have been damaged by this city and in this city, that you would give them strength. I pray that all of our lives would be lives of repentance, and we would all know our need for Jesus. Lord, I need you right now. I, I ask that you would take over my Help my mind and my mouth, Lord. Would you anoint me to teach your word, Lord, this morning with great clarity and passion and hope in what you're going to do in this city. Show us the newness that is in Christ, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So the book of Mark has been about what happens when the long-awaited kingdom of God draws near in the person and the work of Jesus. What happens when the kingdom of God breaks into time and space and the, in the person of Jesus, the real historical Jesus. Jesus is bringing the inbreaking kingdom of God and it looks entirely different than anyone thought or anticipated before Jesus got there. When he got there, nobody thought that Messiah would look like this. Nobody thought that people, that the Messiah would do the things that Jesus is doing. Jesus is bringing in this kingdom, and it looks entirely different. He heals lepers. We've talked about that. You don't go around to heal or near lepers. You just didn't do that. Your religion says you remain pure at all costs and keep your distance. So you never went near lepers. Jesus parties with tax collectors and sinners. He parties with tax collectors and sinners. First of all, you didn't party. And especially with tax collectors and sinners. You didn't even go by them. You keep your distance. Best case scenario, God destroys and judges the sinner. Never parties with them. But Jesus goes in and he hangs out with tax collectors and sinners. And he has a meal with them. Jesus calls average men to follow him as disciples. Rabbis never chose people. People were supposed to choose you as a rabbi. 
But Jesus went around choosing people to follow him. He casts out demons and heals the sick and the paralyzed. No one even thought of that before. No one did that. No one walked around and did that. Jesus came with this new authority. He even teaches with a new authority. Jesus was announcing and he was embodying the kingdom of God. He was both word and deed. He would come out and preach it and then live it and show it, saying that God is now becoming king in a whole new way and performing actions to suit these words. He would live out what he preached. Something different from anything that had happened before was being realized in Jesus. And the way that Jesus did these things, the way he showed the profound nature of the inbreaking kingdom of God was amazing. The way he showed what he did, look, he touched a leper. You don't touch a leper. He touched a leper, showing that God cares not just for our physical need, but our emotional needs as well. This man, this leper, as we talked about a couple weeks ago, had never been touched since he was declared unclean by society, and Jesus didn't have to. He can heal with a thought, with a word. He heals very creatively with like mud and spit in the Bible. He could do anything, but he touches this leper. Jesus ate with sinners, showing that God accepted these sinners. He was, it was a meal of acceptance, that God accepted these sinners as they were. This was scandalous grace. He was sitting with these sinners. He was showing that sinners do not need to do something first to become worthy recipients of God's love. God loves them, and he sits with them. And then he forgave the paralytic. He forgave the paralytic, showing that the main problem humanity has is never their suffering. It's always their sin. That's the main problem humanity has. Not their suffering, it's their sin. And Jesus came to rescue sinners and that their most pressing and most immediate need is their sin. And true freedom is not the ability to walk, but the ability to stand before God. And so Jesus, and what angers the Pharisees, and what angers the scribes, and what angers the religious leaders, and what Jesus is doing in these, just these first two chapters, why everyone gets so angry about what Jesus is doing, is because he offers to forgive the man outside of the official structures of the temple in Jerusalem. He heals him outside of Jerusalem. He's in Capernaum. The paralytic is lying on the floor of Peter's house, and there's a hole in the roof, and his friends are peeking over, looking down, and this paralytic is lying on a mat on the ground, and Jesus brings forgiveness to him. And the scribes would say, if this man wants forgiveness, if anyone wanted forgiveness, they had to go to Jerusalem, they had to go to the temple, they had to offer up their sacrifices and offerings and go through all the proper religious repentance channels to get forgiveness. But Jesus brings forgiveness near to him on the floor. And Jesus walked around with this authority. This is what made, this is, he, he was unstable to, to the religious community. They didn't understand him. Jesus walked around with this authority. Everywhere he went, he went with this very authority to forgive sins, to heal people, to heal the blind, to preach repentance, to preach the gospel. He walked around with, with this authority. It would be as if you walked around with the authority to give someone a driver's license. If you just left the DMV and went, I have the authority to give, and you would walk up to, to people on the street and you're like, you know what? You need a license. Here's your license. You look like, you know what, you're going to be a great driver one day. Here you go. 
you could ride that fixie really well. Here you go. Here's a license for you. And you were just giving away license, and people would be like, no, 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 no. If you want a license, you have to go to the DMV and stand in line like everybody else. And you've got to take that super intimidating test where you only can miss like seven, but you always miss like eight. You have to do that, and you have to get behind the wheel and do that whole thing and pay all that money. You can't just go around giving away free driver's license. You have to go through the proper channels. The DMV is the DMV. It doesn't leave. The power doesn't leave. Can you imagine outside the DMV waiting for someone to get off work going, okay, you left the DMV. Can you, can you give me a license now? It's like, no, you have to go. Can, can you, do you have the authority? No, the authority is in the computer, not, not me. Jesus took it outside of the temple, and he embodied the authority of God. And to them, he was dangerous. To the religious leaders, Jesus was dangerous because God was like breaking out of the temple. God was like breaking loose all over the place. And they couldn't, they didn't know how to contain him. So the conflict begins in Jesus and the religious community. There's this conflict. And now, in this pericope, in this story, Jesus and his disciples are questioned not about what they're doing, but what they're not doing. The last story we read last week was about feasting. This story is about fasting. The last one was about feasting. Jesus was feasting with the sinners. This one now is about fasting. Look at verse 18. Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. And people came and said to him, Why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. Jesus, Jesus is saying that the inbreaking kingdom of God is bringing in newness. Bringing in a newness. This bridegroom was a picture and pointed to Jesus and all of his newness. They're saying, why aren't you guys fasting? And Jesus is talking about newness. So this is how we're going to look at this, uh, this little story here. Number one, the nature of newness. What is the nature of this newness? The juxtaposition of this newness. I've been waiting so long to use that word in a point. <laughs> and the nearness of this newness. So the nature of newness, the juxtaposition of newness, and the nearness of newness. Nearness of newness. Okay. The nature. The first one. Nature. What is this, na- this newness and what is it all about? What is the nature of it that Jesus is bringing? Jesus said, I'm bringing in a, a new thing. New wine. A new patch. And you can't mix it with the old. What is he talking about? Now, we've said time and time again through this whole thing, we, we kind of keep coming back to the same theme because it's throughout the whole book of Mark. The followers of God were an eschatological people with an eschatological hope. We've said this quite a bit. Eschatology has to do with the end of all things. But the end for the people of God was like a new beginning. So they were an eschatological people. Being an eschatological people meant that they waited and clung to a hope of a better future, a future where God would right every wrong, restore all that is broken, and bring to an end the present evil age. God would bring everything to an end and bring about his new kingdom. And they were clinging to this hope. They were clinging to the end and the consummation and the restoration of all things. Now, currently, in this context, things were not right. God was not on the throne physically. Caesar was. The people of God were under a Roman yoke. They were in exile, so to speak. Because of this, the people of God fasted twice a week, They mourned, they prayed that God would come and deliver them. 
And they believed that one day soon God would close out this present evil kingdom and open up a brand new kingdom. And they clung to that day. And they hoped for that day. And they fasted and they mourned because God did not sit on the throne like he once did. So, what Jesus was saying here to these Pharisees and the disciples of John was a very radical, eschatological pronouncement about the end of all things. Jesus was saying that the kingdom of God has come. It's there. It's broken in. Emmanuel, God is with us. And because of that, because God is here and God is with us, let's party. That's what Jesus was saying. God is with us. Why are you fasting? You should be partying. And they were like, why aren't you fasting? And Jesus' response was, why aren't you partying? That's what he said. Why aren't you having a party with us? Why aren't you enjoying the presence of God, the inbreaking kingdom of God, and not just any party, the best kind of party, a wedding party. He just didn't say some birthday party. He didn't say some like whatever, whatever party, Friday night party. He went wedding party, the best kind of party. And in a Jewish wedding, friends and guests had no responsibility but to enjoy the festivities and to party. When you got invited to a wedding, you went there to party. And that's what everybody knew. And the kingdom of God has drawn near in Jesus. And it's not a funeral wake. It's a wedding party. And in such presence of joy, it's not just inappropriate to fast. It's impossible to fast. Tarek uh, and Erica got engaged a couple weeks ago. And Tarek's guy that does announcements. Yeah, isn't that cool? Yes. Amen. Uh, I'm excited. I can't wait. And so, and he can't either. And, um, and so, I, I, I can't imagine when Tarek... Come their wedding day in, in several months from now. On his actual wedding day, I show up, and I'm, I'm dressed up, and he's dressed up, and he's, like, super excited, and I roll in, and he's like, oh, my gosh. I'm, like, just shy. He's just shy of his, when he gets married, of his 40th birthday. He was waiting a very long time for the woman of his dreams. He's like, oh, my gosh. I get to be, this is my wedding day. Can you believe it? It's here. Are you ready to party or what? And I'm like, I'm fasting, dude. <laughs> I mean, you're going to have a great time. The food looks good. The wine looks good. I'm, I'm fasting. I, I think you'd, like, punch me. You just don't do that. First of all, it would be offensive if I said that. If you walked into someone, and you're in a wedding party or whatever, and you walk in, you're, like, all gloomy. you got, like, ash on your forehead. Like, I'm mourning. Like, you're not mourning today. Well, you're partying today. It would be offensive, inappropriate, rude, and for me, it would be impossible. You have to party, like when your good friend has invited you to their wedding feast. In answering the Pharisees and John's disciples, Jesus could have simply said, listen, I'm going to appeal to the Old Testament. The Old Testament says you're only supposed to fast once a year on the Day of Atonement, Leviticus chapter 16. That's it. Jesus could have said that, like the Bible just says you can only fast once a year. You guys are fasting twice a week. So that's why I don't fast. He could have said that, but he takes it farther than that. Jesus took the matter further and said it would be inappropriate for them to fast. Why? Because the bridegroom is among his wedding party. Because Jesus is near. And this wedding imagery also suggests this sense of newness. Because when you get married at your wedding, it's the ultimate of new beginnings. When you're standing there at the altar, entering into this new relationship, everything is new. You have 
new closeness, new intimacy, new bills. It's all new when you're standing there about to get married. And this is, this is why in, in, the, in, in Ephesians chapter 5, the Bible teaches of this redemption of Genesis chapter 3. In Christ, this new wedding, what happens when believers get married? That the wife, it says in Ephesians chapter 5, and this, thing, this is all new. The wife comes under the protection and the spiritual covering and leadership of her husband through submission. But the husband totally dies to serve his bride. Dies. That's what Ephesians 5 says. His example is Jesus, who died for the church in total submission to God and humility in the world. That's why the dudes up front with a black suit on, standing at the altar first. He represents Jesus. He represents, I'm dying, I'm dying, I'm at this altar first. So whenever there's a fight, I die first. Whenever there's anything that needs to take a hit, anyone needs to take a hit, I take it first. I'm here first. And the wife is dressed in beautiful white, and she meets him at the altar. It's all new. And this is all new because before that, you were single, you lived for you. If you're single now, you kind of do. You live for you. Your decisions about time are all about you. Your financial decisions are all about you. If you want that jacket you can't afford, you buy it and go, I'm going top ramen for the next month. (laughs) And you just do it. and You just make it happen. When you're married, those decisions are not that easy. It's different. It's all new. It's because when you're single, it's about you. But when you're married, it's not. And that's the image here is there's a newness coming in. Everything is now new. The wedding is the beginning of newness. And this wedding imagery pushes that idea forward here. Jesus is bringing in something entirely new, and it doesn't fit with the old. It doesn't fit. If you try to bring your single life into your married life, it won't fit. You will have a ruined single life and a ruined married life. And what Jesus is saying here is that the newness that he brings in doesn't fit with the old. So what's the nature of this newness? And he says it here. It's joy. The nature of newness is joy. Joy should be the core response to the inbreaking kingdom of God. Joy, that's what what Jesus is getting at here. He uses the most joyful and celebratory event to describe the nature of what he brings. A wedding party. Following Jesus, living with Jesus is like going to a wedding party. The kingdom of God has broke into time and space and Jesus is among them. And sinners are forgiven. The lame walk. The blind see. Lepers are touched. Demon possessed are free. People are being taught the gospel of God. Rejoice. And Jesus is saying to these Pharisees, why aren't you rejoicing with us? The kingdom of God is near. Psalm 1611 says, you make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. And in your right hand, there are pleasures forevermore. Sorrow and and fasting is absolutely inappropriate to this new situation. It's absolutely wrong. It doesn't fit because the presence of Jesus is there. And why doesn't it fit? Why is Jesus saying, listen, you're fasting. The things that you're doing don't fit into what I'm doing. Why is Jesus saying that? The way Jesus illustrates the why is by sharing two parables. And in them we see the juxtaposition of newness. The old versus the new. Look at verse 21. Jesus says it like this. And he he explains, he uses two different parables now. 
This is the first parable that we have in the book of Mark. Two different parables. No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it, the new from the old, and a worse tear is made. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is destroyed, and so are the skins. But new wine is for fresh wineskins. So what he's saying here is this. You can't put a shrink-to-fit raw denim patch on your old worn-in jeans if you speak denim, okay? That's what he's saying. Like you get like raw denim, shrink-to-fit, Levi whatever, like cut it out and like put it on your old raggedy tore-up jeans to fix a hole or something, and you wash them. When you wash them, the patch will shrink and tear away from the old jean, destroy the old jean worse, and ruin the patch. Everything is ruined. And new wine ferments. And then expands, and it needs pliable skin, a wine skin, a wine barrel, to stretch with it. If you put new wine in an old, crusty wine skin, when it ferments and expands, it will burst, and you will lose the wine and the wine skin. Everything will be lost. Jesus is bringing in something entirely new. And this eschatological newness of Jesus' mission cannot be contained within the old structures of Judaism or religion, the old garment or the old wineskin. It cannot be contained. If you try to do so, if you try to add Jesus to an old religion, the consequences will be disastrous for everybody involved. Everything will be lost. Here's the point. Old and new cannot be mixed together. Old and new cannot be mixed together. This is not like vintage modern fashion or furniture or something. The old and new don't go together in Jesus. Jesus is saying that these two things don't mesh. Let's be very clear about what these two things are that Jesus is talking about. What are these two things that will not go together? They are Jesus and religion. Jesus and religion don't go together. Namely here, what Jesus is talking about is Judaism. Judaism and Jesus, though Jesus was Jewish, and though he went to synagogue, and though he knew the Torah, when you add these two things together, they don't mix. If you try to attach or make an addition to Judaism through Jesus, you can't do that. You cannot absorb Jesus into traditional Judaism or religion of any sort. He is a new patch that will tear away from an old garment. He's like new wine that will burst old wineskins. Jesus did not come to patch up your life. Jesus did not come to pour something new into your old, crusty skin. That is not why Jesus came. He came to bring complete newness. So, here's what this means. Jesus won't mix with your Zen Buddhism really well. I know Zen Buddhism is cool, but it doesn't mix with Jesus. So you're going, I believe in this, and I'm going to add a little bit of Jesus to it. It doesn't mix. Jesus won't pair well with our materialism. I'm going to add Jesus to my materialism. I'm going to add Jesus to my consumerism. I'm going to add Jesus to my individualism. I'm going to add Jesus to my narcissism. Those two things will not mix. Jesus won't jive with your self-righteousness either. Jesus won't jive with your holier-than-thou attitude. And he also won't jive with your jaded and our jaded arrogance. He doesn't blend well with these things. And what, what, what Jesus is saying here is that the finality, look at the finality of this parable. When you try to add old and new, you lose both. 
You lose the wine and the skin, the patch and the old garment. You lose everything. The patch shrinks and the garment tears more and you lose it. Both the wine and the wineskin burst and you lose it. When you try to add Jesus to your materialism, everything is lost. Let me give you an example. If you're somewhat materialistic and you're like, I'm going to add Jesus to my materialism, what happens is that Jesus, Christianity, never really takes. Like, I'm going to start following Jesus, but I'm not going to really give up this like, thing in my life this materialism or whatever. I'm going to follow them, but I want to blend them with all these other really cool things that I got going on. And when we do that, Christianity never really takes, and our materialism isn't as fun anymore. We feel guilty about being materialistic, and, we, and our Christianity doesn't ever really take off. And what Jesus is saying is that both of them will be lost, and you'll probably be miserable. The appropriate response to Jesus is not more religion. The appropriate response to Jesus is not more religion. When you respond to Jesus, you're not adding religion to your already religious self, nor is it the construction of a new religion. The proper response to Jesus is something completely non-religious. With the coming of the bridegroom comes faith. This is what Jesus is getting at. It's not, add me to your already established practices in Judaism. It's not that. Add me to your already established practices in your, in your materialism. It's not that. Jesus is getting at, what Jesus is getting at is, do you believe that the kingdom of God has drawn near? Do you believe that the promised one is in our presence? If so, this brings in a whole new reality. This brings in a whole new way of seeing the world. Now you see the world through the lens of Jesus. Now everything you do in life, art, work, whatever else you do, all things that you do, relationships, are seen through the lens of this new world, Jesus. And the old way must be abandoned, and a life of faith, total reliance upon God must begin. And this is how Jesus pronounced the kingdom. Verse 14 in Mark 1. Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God, saying, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe in the gospel. Repent and believe, faith. Now, this whole faith narrative, this whole faith story isn't really uh, told in its entirety yet. It will in chapter three. We'll get to this whole faith thing. But Mark just shows like the undercurrent of it right here. You have to believe Even the religion of the Old Testament that was set up by God was an elaborate system that effectively taught that God kept his distance from sinners. Even though Israel rejoiced at the presence of God among them, the presence of God was ironically, and in in paradox, at one and the same time, a reminder of God's distance. Because if you remember, the tabernacle dwelt among the people of God So God was in the middle, and the people of God surrounded the temple. However, God dwelled in unapproachable light. So he was close, but he was never, he was present, but he was never near. You couldn't draw near to God in that way. He dwelt in inapproachable light. He dwelt actually in a very dark temple. And the Shekinah glory was held behind all kinds of courts, and you couldn't have access to God's presence. 
the coming of Jesus abolishes this distance and thus abolishes, abolishes religion. The kingdom of God is at hand. It's near. And this is what Jesus is saying. And our response is neither more religion or a new religion. It's repentance and faith. And the Apostle Paul was the most militant Jew in the, in the New Testament. He hunted and killed and imprisoned Christians, which is a very startling picture of what religion does to people who don't believe like them. But he met Jesus. He met Jesus, and this is how he describes his new life in Galatians 2.20. He says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. Paul did not add Jesus to his already militant religion, nor did he get a new one, a new religion. He died, he repented, and his new life is now a life of faith. I live it by faith in Jesus. And Jesus came with the kingdom saying, repent and believe. So the real question posed by Jesus in the image of the wedding feast and the two parables is not whether people who want to follow Jesus will make room for Jesus in their already full agendas and lives, like sewing a, a new patch on an old garment or refilling an old container. The question that Jesus is saying is, will, will they forsake business as usual and join the wedding celebration? Whether they will become entirely new vessels for the expanding fermentation of the gospel in their lives. Will you open up your life entirely to God? Jesus calls this new wine and new wineskins. You need to have new wine and new wineskins. Now, to be totally honest, I have no idea what that means for you. I don't know. Like, I was racking my brain, brain praying, like, what am I going to say? New wine, new wineskins, what do I say? Like, a new job, a new location, a new place to live, a new... I have no idea what that means for you. But look how Jesus describes himself. He calls himself a new wine. He says, I'm a new vintage, and the old can't contain me. Your old life can't. Your old beliefs can't. Your old tired attempts of being spiritual can't contain Jesus. So I think I would be correct in saying that repentance and belief could be a good point of application here. When we repent... Martin Luther says that the, Christian, the whole Christian life should be one of repentance. Whether you repent every day or 500 times a day, we should be a repenting community. Several years, years back, um, Lauren Hill uh, had this super successful album, The Miseducation of Lauren Hill. You've probably heard about it. After this, this CD of this album just blew up, she like disappeared. And no one even heard from her for like four years. And then she, four years after that album came out, she reemerged uh, and showed up for an MTV Unplugged gig. And then in this gig, you probably heard the album, maybe, maybe you have, maybe you haven't. She had two songs in there, and she kind of described her, her journey and what happened and all this other stuff through music, and she had two songs in her set that were back-to-back. And the first one was called Rebel. And in this song, she used the word rebel as a synonym for Repentance. And she said the song was about her, her repentance, her turning. And she uses the word rebel because it was like a rebellious act against the people and society telling her how to live and what to do next. Like people and society were saying, you have to do this, Lauren. You have to do that. You have to do this. You have to put out a new CD. You have to, and she just went dark. 
And she said she rebelled against what people wanted, and she repented. And she, she used this word interchangeably in their song. Rebel, repent. Rebel, repent. And then her next song, after she's done playing that song, she introduced a song like this. This next song, I think, is a good one. It's a good follow-up to Rebel, because after I did, this is what I encountered. And the next song was called Just Like Water. And it was about the nearness and the presence of God that happened in her life after she repented. It's this beautiful song about the nearness and the closeness and the cleansing power of the presence of Jesus. I won't quote the song because whenever you quote songs, they don't ever go over as well. So I won't quote it. But it's a great song. And this is what happens. Once you, you and I repent, once we turn and believe, rep- with repentance comes newness. And with newness comes a nearness. Because look at verse 19. Can the wedding guest fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. Jesus was near. Jesus was with them. It's no wonder that the, that the meal and communion, bread and wine, became the symbol of Christian fellowship in the church, both in respect to the presence of our Lord and in anticipation for the ultimate wedding feast of the Lamb. It's no wonder where in the, in, in the book of Acts, the love feast, the, the feast became the symbol of Christian fellowship, because Jesus, if he, was a, if, if he was around today, he would be called a foodie. He loved getting around people and food. There was something about it where he enjoyed this feast, and all of it was an eschatological pointing forward to the wedding supper of the Lamb. And so, we have communion here. And what that does every week when we have communion, when we take communion, we do it in remembrance of what Jesus has done for us on the cross, his body broken, his blood poured out for the remission of our sins. But we also do it in anticipation of the coming day when we will all sit around this huge table and feast with God. And when God will bring about a renewal of all things, and it's called the wedding supper of the Lamb. The biggest wedding party you and I have ever been to, probably the most joyous one that we'll ever be a part of, when we're sitting around communing with Jesus. The presence of Christ is, to point, is the point of communion. That's why we have it. Jesus was near his people. He was near them. This is why we have communion here every week, and this is why I say almost every week that when churches normally end after the sermon, we just like just begin. And the reason why we spend so much time playing songs or however you want to say it or worship or playing music or doing music after the teaching is because we don't want this to become religious. We don't want communion to become religious. We want it to become all relational where repentance and thanksgiving can take place, response and reflection so that we don't become some religious institution. We become pliable and our hearts are ready to receive from God that this information that is given to us by the teaching of God's word will turn into transformation in our lives and in our hearts. So when we leave, we would be the church on mission for the glory of God in this city. That's why we do this. So you don't just go out and go, okay, that was whatever. Let's go eat at Ike's now or something. And then you just, after halfway into the sandwich, you totally forget what you heard. We do that so you can come forward and you reflect, what, Lord, are you saying to me? How can I apply this? What repentance needs to happen in my life? 
But here is the twist in the story. The twist happens in verse 20. The nearness of Jesus can only be accomplished one way. Jesus, the bridegroom, has to be taken away. Look at verse 20. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. There is coming a day. This is the first time that this is alluded to in the book of Mark. Traditionally, in a Jewish wedding, grooms were never taken away from weddings. Normally, the bride and groom leave on their honeymoon. That didn't happen in a Jewish wedding. The guests left, and the bride and groom stayed. The guests leave, not the groom. The verb here is saying Jesus was taken implies the use of force. Like we talked about in our second week here, when Jesus was driven, he was taken into the wild. That same, this is the same word used. Jesus is, is driven away, taken away. What's going on here? Is Mark's first allusion to the cross, where Jesus will be taken away. And he's taken away, ironically, by this old system. This old garment will rip away from the new. This old system of, 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 of these Pharisees and these scribes plot together, we'll see next week, to kill Jesus. This old system must take away the bridegroom, Jesus' life, because he has violently disturbed them with his new teaching, which tears at its very fabric, and they're threatened by him. And paradoxically, because Jesus was physically taken away to his death, his presence, his nearness, and his newness is achieved for us. He was taken away that we can be brought near and invited into the wedding supper of the Lamb. He would be taken away at the cross. The the religious rulers would grab him and then nail him to the cross. And ironically, in Mark's story, what he's saying is that this This new way does not jive with the old way. You need a new heart. You need a new approach. And all of this is done for us by Jesus on the cross. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for the cross, Lord. Thank you that you accomplished nearness and you accomplished our, our salvation by you being taken away. And the disciples did mourn when you were taken away. But Lord, three days later, you rose from the grave. And now, because you were taken away, we get your presence and your nearness always. Your word says that you live in us and you abide in us. And Lord, I don't know, there's some people that, I pray that you would apply this to their, their hearts. This new wine and new wineskins, Lord, would you give us a new heart? Your word says that you would give us a, a new heart, a heart of flesh, and take away a heart of stone. Would you take away a heart of stone right now? We don't believe. Cause us to place our trust and our faith in you, Jesus. We love you, and we pray that you would, you would apply these things, these truths, to our heart. In Jesus' name, amen.